Is it the contention of the chair that under the rules of the Senate, I am not allowed to accurately describe public views of Senator Sessions? Right, and I want to play this clip from February of 2017. Sure, go ahead. Senator Elizabeth Warren is found in violation of Senate Rule 19 and is being cautioned by the chair. The chair has not made a ruling as respect to the senator's comments. The senator is following process and tradition by reminding the senator of Massachusetts of the rule. Standard procedural stuff, right? But I cut something out. This is what it really sounded like. The chair has not made a ruling as respect to the senator's comments. The senator is following process and tradition. By reminding... Senator from Massachusetts. By reminding the Wait, someone is just feeding him lines? Mm-hmm. This is happening in the Senate? It happens every day in the Senate. So I've read a few articles about you, and people tend to refer to you in sports metaphors, like you're a referee or an umpire. Is that accurate? Is it like that? Yes. Yes, it's like that. Who's that? That is Alan Fruman. Hannah, we've had a lot of guests over the years who know an awful lot about how things work in Washington. But when it comes to the Senate, Allen beats them all. And he would never say that. He is a humble man. But it's true. Because knowing the intricacies of the Senate was his job for 35 years. What was his job? Well, we've got breaking news tonight. The Senate parliamentarian has denied Senate Democrats' attempt to include a $15 an hour minimum wage... Senate needs to step up, override the parliamentarian, okay? The parliamentarian is not elected. Our demand is for the- Big news, and it is big news. The Senate parliamentarian says only one new budget resolution and one reconciliation package. That's it. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we're talking about a position that has been referred to as, quote, the most powerful person in Washington, the Senate parliamentarian. Are you trying to tell me that the person whispering in the chair's ear is more powerful than the Speaker of the House or the Senate Majority Leader or the President? Are you serious? Maybe I'm being a bit hyperbolic. Uh, that line was from a Politico article about the current Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough. And I will get into why McDonough is claimed to hold so much power right now a little bit later. All right. First off, can you tell me what the Senate parliamentarian does? At the risk of sounding conceited, uh, the Senate parliamentarian is the de facto presiding officer of the Senate. The presiding officer is the person who sits in the chair of the Senate and rules on everything. Who can speak? Who can interrupt somebody speaking? What someone speaking can and cannot say? They rule on every point of order. Points of order are basically objections to what someone else is saying or doing. Okay, wait, I thought that the vice president president was the presiding officer in the Senate. Yes, technically they are. Uh, But when the Veep is not around, which is pretty much all the time, the most senior member of the majority sits in the chair. And Alan told me, most of the time, senators don't want to be in the chair ruling on things. They want to be down there doing senator stuff. Now, to be clear, the parliamentarian doesn't sit in the chair, but they tell the person in the chair what they should do. They make decisions, they give advice based on past episodes of confusion. This is Sarah Binder. She's a professor of political science at George Washington University. I teach Congress. It's the 
only thing I know anything about. So, if you look at the Constitution, it says, Article 1, Section 5, the House and Senate will make their own rules. If you have the power to make your rules, you also have the power to apply your rules. And that's the point at which the parliamentarians in the House and the Senate come to play a role. They are supposed to be the nonpartisan, neutral, expert arbiter of how to apply the rules. And that sounds like, well, that's not hard. However, if you look at the rules of the House and you look at the rules of the Senate, they don't actually tell you what to do and how to apply them in every single circumstance. The House has a parliamentarian too? It does. And while I am focusing on the Senate parliamentarian for this episode, the parliamentarians in both chambers of Congress are the ones who know the rules and they advise the presiding officer on what to do in any given situation. Now, Hannah, do you know what dictates the rules of the Senate? I'm pretty sure it's something that people use in, like, student council and community meetings. It's Robert's Rules of Order, right? I thought so, too, but I was wrong. And don't feel bad. Uh, Even some senators thought the same thing. Lay people assume, and and one or two uh, senators elect had assumed, that the Senate used Robert's Rules of Order. And I would suggest to people that, um, okay, if you are familiar with Robert's Rules of Order, you probably know that uh, Colonel Robert first published them, I believe, in 1876, which would then beg the question, how did the Senate muddle through from 1789 until 1876 uh, before Colonel Roberts saved them, which he didn't do, of course. Wait, if they don't use Robert's rules of order, what do they use? They use their own rules. They make them and they update them every few years. The most recent rules and manual of the Senate is from 2013 and comprises 44 rules. Point being that the Senate is a self-governing body. It operates by its own rules and precedents. Nobody is familiar with them coming into the Senate. And smart senators recognize right away that the rules of the road in the Senate are are unique to the body. And uh, some of them will set out in various ways to uh, become knowledgeable. How complicated are those 44 rules? Fairly complicated. Uh, I tried to read it. You're looking at basically a dense 80 pages of procedure. Honestly, I would have a really tough time learning them if I was to spend a day in the Senate. But those 80 pages are the absolute tip of the iceberg. So here's the thing. There were what we call precedents. So the House might decide something, the Senate might decide something, and someone might have scratched it down on a piece of paper. And there, might have, there was a clerk uh, at the front on the dais, uh, and they usually reported to the speaker or to the presiding officer. But basically there was no written, right? There were no really compilation of precedents. So neither the House or Senate really knew, the members didn't know what to do in any new circumstance. So there are lots of appeals, lots of points of order. Hey, stop, I raise a point of order. That's not how this works. For what purpose does the gentleman from New York rise? Mr. Speaker, I rise to a point of order. Gentleman will state his point of order. Mr. Speaker, I object to consideration of this bill because it violates rule 21. And, And they'd arbitrate it. There'd be lots of votes on the floor. But those decades of precedence, often written on little slips of paper, have been collected and compiled into an official manual. Alan helped edit it. It's called Riddick's Senate Procedure, Precedents and Practices, and that's 1,608 pages. So the parliamentarian is the one who knows all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. 
They advise whomever is the presiding officer in the Senate. Right. How do they do that physically, though? Well, to explain this, Alan showed me a photo of where everyone on the Senate dais sits. There's the Senate floor. Unfortunately, my fat head is in the way. There, there are four chairs across the secretary's desk, journal clerk, parliamentarian, legislative clerk, and bill clerk. There are other chairs behind. There is a chair for the secretary of the Senate. There's a chair for the sergeant at arms. So, so this is the parliamentarian's battle station. It's a swivel chair. It's a swivel chair that rocks. I have seen it go over once pre-television. That was quite a scene. And in essence, what the parliamentarian does is she swivels and speaks to the presiding officer up here. The presiding officer's mic has a mute switch. It's a spring-activated mute switch. The parliamentarian can press and hold if she wants to mute the microphone so that the conversation between the parliamentarian and presiding officer is not public. I asked Alan if the parliamentarian is just swiveling back and forth all day, and he said that was pretty accurate. Is this job anywhere in the Constitution? No, it is not. Uh, The job was created in 1935 during FDR's New Deal era. When uh, Roosevelt and his administration became a little more proactive legislatively, and Roosevelt's vice president uh, had other things to do than sit on the dais of the Senate and preside. And so the Senate decided that they needed somebody to be the repository of the various interpretations of the Senate's rules. And they selected a man named Charles Watkins, who had first come to the Senate in 1904. Charles Watkins. He started out as a stenographer in 1904 in the Senate. He moved up to a journal clerk. That's the person who takes the minutes of what happens all day, every day in the Senate. And the job of parliamentarian was created for him in 1935. And he was good at it. He had a remarkable memory. Uh, he was considered completely non-partial to either party. And before the microphone mute button existed, Watkins would spin around in his chair and whisper to the presiding officer hundreds of times a day. And as a result, a newspaper called him, quote, the Senate's ventriloquist. And he held the job until he retired in 1964. So 60 years. 60 years. And the next parliamentarian... He had worked with Watkins. My daughter once asked me, like, how do you get to become the Senate parliamentarian? And I I somewhat flippantly said, well, first you have to be the assistant parliamentarian. But it turns out to be generally true that they hire from within. Alan came in this way. He had been the assistant parliamentarian. Why is that important? It it helps to limit the partisanship, right? Because they, they get, first of all, they get socialized into the practice of being the parliamentarian, and it's a source of expertise. It's, it's always been the model, and it's the only appropriate model. Alan told me, in the office of the parliamentarian, you want to have assistants spaced out generationally, so when someone leaves office, the next person can be there a long time. And to this date, there have been six, and only six, Senate parliamentarians. And Sarah says the job requires limited partisanship, which honestly is something that feels nearly impossible here in 2022. Can a parliamentarian be truly nonpartisan? From what I can gather, parliamentarians just might be among the most nonpartisan people in Washington, D.C. And I say that because their rulings help both sides. 
and they take heat from both sides as a result. And let me give you an example. Uh, one parliamentarian, Robert Dove, was dismissed by Democratic Majority Leader Robert Byrd and was replaced by Alan Fruman. And then Robert Dove was reappointed again a few years later and then fired and replaced by Alan again, but this time by Republican Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott. What did Dove do that caused so much controversy? Well, that is related to the powers of the Senate parliamentarian that we haven't gotten into. The reason why they have been named the most powerful people in America. So powerful that at one point, Alan and his family received death threats. And all that's coming up after the break here on Civics 101. But first, when Nick was researching for this episode, he sent me this list. It was the 56 things that they don't teach you at parliamentary school that Alan had sent him. And he promises he will include selections of that list in next week's newsletter. And you can subscribe to get that free and fun newsletter that comes out every two weeks at the top of our website, civics101podcast.org. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. We're back. We're talking about the Senate parliamentarian. So, Nick, let's get into why this job is so powerful. Yeah, this is maybe the reason why we've gotten so many requests from listeners to do an episode on this. Two specific facets of the position that result in some senators getting very, very frustrated. Number one, committee assignments. Here's Sarah Bender again. This was a little less noticed about the parliamentarian, but the bulk of the work is actually deciding when a bill is introduced, which committee gets the bill. That's a power of the speaker, and it's a power of the presiding officer and the rules. But a norm, a practice, is that the parliamentarian makes those decisions. And those decisions can be pretty consequential. So even though deciding which committee gets a bill is technically the power of the presiding officer of the Senate, the parliamentarian is the one really making the call. Yeah, every time. And since most bills die in committee... Senators care a great deal about which committee they go to. You can work on a bill for months in advance before you write it, meeting with members of a committee beforehand to make sure it goes through, and at the last minute, find out it's going to go somewhere else? Here is former parliamentarian Alan Fruman again. You can have a thousand-page bill dealing with environmental remediation 
all of this material in the jurisdiction of the Environment and Public Works Committee. If, however, there is a provision in there that affects revenues, that bill is supposed to go to the Finance Committee. Suffice it to say that the staff of the Environment Committee doesn't like that. The staff of all the other committees do not like that. If, if they have a provision that might be scored as affecting revenues, they don't necessarily, you know, put, a star, put stars around it. They'll let the parliamentarian find it if, if she's willing to spend, you know, the four or five hours going through every page in line. Wow, so how many bills does a parliamentarian have to go through line by line? A lot. All in all, the parliamentarian is responsible for referring probably 10, 12,000 items in any particular Congress. And virtually all of that plays out without any evidence on, on the floor of the Senate. My point being silent killer. Nobody sees that job being done. The committees are always jealous of their jurisdictions. And finally, the reason why Alan Fruman was in the media spotlight a lot and dubbed the most powerful person in Washington, uh, the reason why law enforcement was sent to his house to protect him and his family in 2010, we've got to first talk about that uniquely senatorial action, the filibuster. I thought that was coming. Hannah, you want to break down the filibuster for everyone? I'll take a swing at it. Uh, Bills that come to the floor of the Senate for a vote require only a majority to pass. However, a bill can be debated endlessly until what is called cloture is invoked by three-fifths of the Senate, which means that, in essence, a bill does not pass unless it has the support of 60 people in the Senate. Yep. Well done. It's Rule 22 in the Senate Rules. And nowadays, you don't even see a bill get to the floor without that support, without those 60 votes. And senators rarely stand and talk for hours like Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington anymore. Somebody will listen to me. And as a result, very, very few bills get through the Senate. But there is a special kind of bill, a bill that is not subject to the filibuster. It's called a reconciliation bill. It is a bill that deals with policies that change spending or revenues in the budget. So the budget bill can't be filibustered and neither can reconciliation bills that alter that budget. Okay, well, if I were a senator who really wanted something passed, I would try to squeeze things into those reconciliation bills that maybe weren't related. Like, So what stops a senator from doing that? What stops them is something called the Byrd Rule, named after Senator Robert Byrd in the 1980s. You see, things in those reconciliation bills and proposed amendments to them cannot be, quote-unquote, extraneous. They, they have to be about the budget. And guess who decides what is and is not allowed? I'm going to guess it's the Senate parliamentarian. It is indeed. As a matter of fact, uh, Alan told me that material removed from reconciliation bills on the advice of the parliamentarian because, you know, it violates the bird rule are lovingly referred to as bird droppings. Seriously. Determined Senate majorities over the years of both parties have always pushed the limits of what could be done in reconciliation bills because they recognize that these bills can't be filibustered. 
and that a simple majority is all that's needed to pass a reconciliation bill. Last night's ruling was extremely disappointing. It saddened me, it frustrated me, it angered me, because so many lives are at stake. Senate Democrats have prepared alternative proposals. We'll be holding additional meetings with the parliamentarian in the coming days. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in 2021. There was a massive spending bill, and a component of that bill would have provided a path to citizenship for DREAMers. DREAMers being young, undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States as children who currently have little to no pathway to citizenship. Absolutely. But Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough decided that part of the bill was not germane, meaning the Democrats had to take it out or the bill was going to be subject to a filibuster and not pass. Uh, And so the Democrats removed that dreamer's part. And in the middle of all of this is the dear parliamentarian who has always been a career civil servant, whose entire career is dedicated to serve the Senate in a nonpartisan capacity, who in essence is required to talk truth to power. Every decision the Senate parliamentarian makes, every Uh, consequential decision will anger some very powerful person every single time. And the parliamentarian is just doing her job. Can we go back to something you said earlier? Uh, What was the ruling that Allen made that resulted in those death threats? Yeah, it was related to the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. The bill had gone through the House, it was in the Senate, and the GOP tried many procedural methods to kill that bill. Uh, or make alterations to it, because that would force it to go back to the House for another vote. Allen ruled against those. He was in newspapers and blogs everywhere. And the sergeant-at-arms informed him that as a result, members of the Tea Party had posted they were going to his house. It sounds like a really difficult and unique job. Yeah, it is. Allen said it's not for everybody. These people aren't looking to get advancement to a more powerful role. They're not going to run for higher office or be courted by lobbying firms to make seven-figure salaries when they leave Congress. They make $172,000 a year. Their job is taxing, quiet, and mostly unseen until they make a decision that drags them into the spotlight. Last thing. I can't let this episode end without an anecdote. Indeed, Alan did share a list of dozens of strange and wonderful and terrifying things he saw in his long tenure in the Senate. But none more bizarre than the porta potty incident. All right, I'll bite. What's the porta potty incident? Senator Lowell Weicker from Connecticut was on the floor. Say a correct language and historic occasion. And Senator Jesse Helms wanted him off the floor. And it's hard to get someone off the floor. You can't do that unless Weicker yielded, and Weicker didn't yield. Senator Helms kept coming to the desk wondering if Weicker had violated this rule or that rule, yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. And finally, Helms looked at me and said, well, eventually he's going to need to, uh, he's going to need to go to the bathroom. And naturally, Weicker and his, his allies uh, knew that as well. But there is a small provision in the rules that senators could have, quote, mechanical devices on the floor of the Senate. And Weicker's ally, New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley, knew about this provision. Senator Bradley came up to me and said, well, mechanical devices, Alan, what do you think of a porta potty? You know, if, if we can provide Weicker with some relief, so to speak, does that qualify under this provision? And I thought he was kidding. 
Bradley was about 6'5 or 6'6. And he stood over me and said, Alan, I mean it. What I decided to do was pass the buck. And I've decided that that's up to the Senate Sergeant at Arms. The Sergeant at Arms was duly summoned. He went up to Senator Bradley and just said, no. This whole thing is ridiculous. It's not over yet. Bradley wasn't deterred. Um, He came and asked me about a can of tennis balls. (laughs) I just said no. I never thought that Civics 101 would be a show where we talk about peeing in a tennis ball can, but things can go anywhere when it comes to American government. There you go. Like I said, the parliamentarian has a pretty unique job. That'll do it for Senate Parliamentarian. Point of order, Hannah. We got to get out of here. We guess it's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah, Motion to good. adjourn. <laughs> Alan, if you're hearing this, thank you so much, and I hope I didn't get anything wrong. This episode was made by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Thank you. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton, Christina Phillips is our senior producer, and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by a lot of the old favorites we know and love. Kevin McLeod, Conrad Old Money, Lobo Loco, Scott Holmes, Maiden, Proletur, Rachel Collier, and the greatest of all time, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. All right, let's get on. Can you do a Jimmy Stewart? I don't know. Yeah. No, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it. That was good. That was a good try. At least you tried. I'm going to try it. There's a a big movement to colorize films. And it's not the intent. That sounds a little weird. No, I think... Not the intent. Sounds like Kennedy-ish. Sounds like Buffalo Bill. That doesn't sound like...